Thanks for, thanks for being here, attentive, having cake. Happy birthday. It's a good day. So, um, anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to cut Dr. Fox short. Uh, I have to be in the ED at 2, so uh, thanks for doing that. Um, but um, So this was a topic that uh, Tyler mentioned that uh, you guys haven't had recently, and I figured probably is a good discussion uh, for this month. Just to give you guys a quick overview for the students or interns, uh, been at UCI since 2002. Uh, work uh, quite a bit with the med students and also with Dr. BC, work with the undergrad research students, so the Emergency Medicine Research Associates Program. And with Dr. Langdorf, I work on the journal, so our emergency, our Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. And uh, we just started the fellowship, so you guys met Ying. So we have uh, the new uh, Faculty Development Education Fellow. So we keep changing the name as we assign her more duties. So it initially was just Faculty Development, then we added the education stuff for the interns, so we then because of Faculty Development and Education. So maybe when we assign our research pro project, we'll make it faculty development, education, and research. And so, anyway, it's good to be here. So um, if you guys have some, if we have some time at the end, be happy to answer questions about uh, MRAP or, uh, in particular, about the computerized alcohol screening and brief intervention that we do in the ED. So uh, you probably wonder what those, what those tablets are that they got moving around in the ER. All right, so inflammatory bowel disease, definitely something that you guys end up seeing. We'd like to talk, uh, start with the case. So 55-year-old, four months, uh, frequent, urgent defecation, loose and bloody stools, perfect ER patient, you know. Sounds like an urgent situation, you know, come to the ER after four months, which uh, is not atypical. Mild cramping, fatigue, eight, up to eight bowel movements a day. Seems a little high. Often wakes up with the symptoms. Uh, if you don't wake up normally in the middle of the night, you got a normal job. Not like an ER doctor, you got to wake up, then that's probably not normal. Before, he had only one bowel movement a day, seven pound weight loss in the few months. Uh, he's got joint pain that started, he believes, with this, and it's worse in the AM, resolves during the day. Past medical history, hypertension, meds, hydrochlorothiazide. Used to smoke, stopped smoking. Vital signs are normal. Uh, physical exam only significant for the abdominal tenderness he describes as lower and uh, he's got gross blood on rectal exam. Labs, his hemoglobin is 12, MCV is 76, low. Uh, if you did send it, he would have fecal leukocytes and a stool analysis he previously reported that was the main workup he had was negative. Um, if he would uh, get a colo, this is what the colo would have shown. I'm adding all of these just so we'll uh, get to the case. Otherwise, uh, it would be uh, a little harder to figure out. Colo shows continuous erythema, friability, loss of vascular pattern from the rectum to the splenic flexure. History shows, uh, histology shows cryptitis, crypt abscesses, and crypt architecture is distorted. So likely diagnosis, just think about it, and that will be kind of what we're going to be talking about the whole day going through all of these different things. So is it Crohn's? Is it infectious colitis? Is it ischemic colitis? Microscopic colitis? Ulcerative colitis. And this would be a typical board question that uh, if you had that whole case that you would have. That uh, probably won't be that hard. You might already know what it is. So, so Crohn's clinical presentations, often 
diarrhea, abdominal pain, fevers, anorexia, waist loss. Very nonspecific, though, and it's delayed. People don't figure this out for months. They keep coming back to the ER. You're wondering if they're just got nothing better to do than to come to the ER or if they really have all of these symptoms. So it's a little, definitely have abdominal pain with Crohn's, especially if they have ileal disease. So still have the fever, the abdominal pain, vomiting, either profuse diarrhea or decreased output uh, if uh, it can happen to, and we'll talk about some of the situations that might happen. If it's Crohn's colitis instead of ileitis, abdominal pain, fever, usually lots of diarrhea associated with it. So here's a typical one x-ray that you could have, and um, a little difficult to see, but what do you guys think? Not normal. Okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah, this is a barium enema, uh, stoning uh, type stricture. They said the descending, so descending colon, and associated sinus tract. I thought this didn't look normal either, and that seemed <laughs> like the transverse. So, but that was the actual diet. So, is it Crohn's or is it ulcerative colitis? Yeah. So Crohn's colitis, deep ulcers, cobblestoning. So this would be an endoscopic picture. I think uh, most of us would agree that doesn't look normal. Uh, ulcers in the terminal ileum, if there's ileal disease, that just looks like lots of pus to me. It just doesn't look normal all throughout. And it definitely looks angry. It looks edematous. It looks very friable. So when, you know, what do you do with these patients? And we're going to go into lots of different scenarios. So you're going to see this over and over with different scenarios. So there's all, often delay in diagnosis. A lot of these patients come in with very nonspecific symptoms. So you're going to have to decide, is this something I need to do something about today? Can I send this patient home, refer it? Who do I refer? And these are some of the things we're going to be talking about as we go through them. Uh, and you know, it happens with both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and we'll talk about why they're so similar. So and who you end up referring to, and this all comes out through the history, is they've had multiple episodes of this. So, you know, I mean, why should somebody just keep coming in for the same thing unless they got no place to go? So family history is common, uh, at least with uh, Crohn's. They could have perirectal disease, especially if they have sinus tract. They could have extra-intestinal manifestations. We talked about arthritis. Uh, they could have rashes, back pain, iritis. Uh, you would refer them for endoscopic evaluation, biopsy, barium enema, if necessary. So ulcerative colitis, we talked a little bit about Crohn's, but ulcerative colitis, very similar to Crohn's, variable presentation. Depends on the anatomic distribution of the disease. Usually uh, Crohn's is a little harder. It could be ileal, it could be more distal, it could be kind of patchy. Uh, Crohn's is usually not patchy. Um, mild cases could have constipation often have rectal bleeding, severe cases, have tons of stool during the day, and most of those are bloody. They, they have crampy abdominal pain, tenesmus, they feel like they got to go, they can't go, they did go, it's still there, they, they just don't feel comfortable all day. Fever, tachycardia, anemia. Ulcerative colitis, definitely more common, rectal bleeding. Crohn's, more commonly, abdominal pain, masses, perianal uh, lesions, sinus tracts. Ulcerative colitis, they kind of group them. Probably not very complicated for you guys looking at it. So stool frequency, you'd think if they don't have a lot, it's mild. They're not tachycardic. Their hematocrit's okay. They're, they don't have weight loss. Their temperature's okay. Their sed rate's normal. Their albumin's normal. Severe cases, they got lots of stool. Tachycardic, their hematocrit's low. They have weight loss. They have temperature. 
they have set rates, and they don't need every one of these to make it severe. They actually have criteria that go through it. It doesn't really change what we do, um, and we'll talk about that. Ulcerative colitis, if you did do a sigmoidoscopy, looks actually fairly similar. Uh, they're usually very edematous, friable, kind of purulent, erosions. Uh, the colonoscopy actually going around all the flexures and stuff is higher risk, and they actually don't recommend an acute illness to do that until that uh, gets. So that's just going up through the sigmoid and the, the uh, descending colon. This is what you'd see. Drugs. Uh, medications that they take for both inflammatory bowel disease, particularly steroids and immune suppression, are going to make the symptoms much harder to pick up, and that's what might be one reason they come in with very vague symptoms. They're not going to have high fevers. They might not have as much uh, belly pain as they would. The drugs they take for these can cause low white cells, low platelets, um, fevers, infection, diarrhea. So all the things that you'd think would be symptoms of the disease could actually be symptoms of the medications that they take. And they take lots of them, and we'll go through some of them, not all of them. There's a lot that they take. So one of the complications that we should be able to pick up in both is toxic metacolon, megacolon. So it's the most significant complication. It's typical with ulcerative colitis, and we'll go through some x-rays with it. But it can be with Crohn's. It can be with antibiotic-related pseudomembranous colitis, and also there's other etiologies. There's tons of loss of muscular tone in advanced disease, and I'll show you what that looks like. They appear toxic, their abdomen's distended, they're tender, and they're just not happy people. They look sick. So that's what I would think of, you know, somebody that would have toxic megacolon. Kind of goes with the name. Fever, tachycardia, they're volume depleted probably from third spacing. Their white count could be high, especially if they're not on immune suppression agents. They could be anemic from either blood loss or chronic disease, and they could have electrolyte abnormalities. You get x-rays, uh, especially uh, abdominal series and a CT scan, and that would show long, continuous, dilated segments of bowel greater than six centimeters in dilation, and we'll see a few examples of that. Loss of hostra could be either because of edema or it could be because of the dilation. Uh, thumb pin printing also due to bowel edema. We'll see some of those examples. So CT findings, thinning of the wall, intraluminal gas, perforation in extreme cases, which would have lots of mortality. What do you guys think of this one? Not good. So pretty dilated. Um, anything else you see besides that? So not just dilated here, but probably lots of gas everywhere else. And so which one? In the descending colon. There's none, right? Right here. Just nice, straight, just like a little, you know, uh, two-inch pipe going in, the, in your wall. So chronic colitis of the left side descending colon, foreshortening, and loss of hostra. And there's huge dilation, obviously, here. Yes? What's the cutoff for bowel dilation? What's the number? You know, this is, you know, anything six centimeters, I think, I think would be a good number. I don't. I don't. Yeah, six, I think. Perforation. So 10 is, we often refer to it as an emergency, needs to be either decompressed um, to, you know, get that, uh, get that down. So 10 is when they worry about perforation. But again, I, I, I don't think the number itself, because it depends on how, they norm, how they've been. So you're going to be following and see what it was before. But the typical one that they always worry about perforation is 10 centimeters. But this is the number they saw, say, for toxic megacolon was 6. Are you going to talk about 
Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so this is, uh, what do you guys think of this one? So there's a positive arrow sign, always helpful. There's another positive arrow sign, always helpful. Yeah, so free error, right? So where would that error be? In the abdomen, under the diaphragm. And why, why do we see this? Yeah, it's just showing you. So, you know, this is actually a supine, which is surprisingly. Marked mucosal, so this, the, this mucosa doesn't look normal. It's actually swollen. There's mucosal edema here of the colon, transverse colon. There's interperitoneal air here in Morrison's pouch. And then there's air outlining the, uh, the bowel. So, so actually, I, I didn't know. Can I ask a question? So how sure. do you know if you look at the transverse colon? Yes. How do you know the bowel wall is thick? Yes. But you can see that both sides of the bowel wall and the transverse colon. Mm -hmm. Think about the way the bowel is supposed to be. It's supposed to be air on the inside and a soft tissue density or fluid or fluid on the outside. So you're not supposed to see the bowel wall as a discrete structure if there's not air on the outside. There's air on the inside, but on a supine abdomen, before you sit them up and have them have the air percolate up under the diaphragm or in the left lateral decubitus percolate up over the dome of the liver, you're not on the supine film. You're not supposed to see both sides of the bowel wall, and you do. Whenever you see both sides of the bowel wall, that means there's got to be air on the outside that ain't supposed to be there. So that's the perforation. So you never see both sides of the bowel wall on a supine film if you do worry about free air. I have a question. Would you be able to tell the difference between air on the outside of the bowel or if it's within the, the wall? On uh, Yeah. I mean, because you'd see if it were in the wall, you'd see little speckles of air within the wall. Real small, either way, you're tiny gonna, speckles. You know, if you got air on the wall, or you got air on the outside. Either way, you're calling a surgeon, giving antibiotics, admitting the patient. There's not much difference in the in the management. It's like surgical emergency, perforation versus bowel necrosis. Yeah, and you'd think you know air in the wall. You'd think you know something invasive, something anaerobic, some kind of anaerobic infection in the wall. Um, and then, so what do you guys think about this one? I didn't actually think ah, it looks abnormal, but I actually wasn't sure what this was. So, so this is what's that? It looks like the air fluid levels, but on the right oh, one. But if you look at it laterally, oh here. Yeah, those Yeah, it might have been this was a left lateral decubitus with the patient, uh, so that's why these all layered out. So definitely dilated, right? These are all dilated, so that's no question about it. But I, I was trying to figure out what all these were. So they actually call these. Uh, pseudopolyposis, and they, it's actually inflammation due, you know, it's caused by chronic inflammation due to inflammatory bowel disease. Doesn't look normal. I looked, if I looked at that, I'd say, you know, that doesn't look normal. I wouldn't know what it is, but it doesn't look normal. And, you know, probably we wouldn't be getting a, a double contrast barium enema in the emergency department, but you'd get some kind of contrast study, most likely. And I think, you know, these are patients these would be one typical patient. Normally, I know uh, you guys have gone over it, hopefully, but you know we, we normally don't give PO contrast to patients that have a uh, BMI that's uh, greater than 22. But I would say these are probably one patient that you want to give contrast to. So somebody you're worried about inflammatory bowel disease, I would choose some. Isn't that only for appendicitis? Yeah, so our, our decision point should be if you're doing a CTA abdomen pelvis to rule out appendicitis, relatively tubby patient. So a BMI above 23, you wouldn't need to give um, oral contrast. And if they're skinny, then they want oral and 
And I think somebody that comes in with a history recurrent, loose bowel movements, and yeah, then the you know, then the differential is broad. So you're going to be even if they're tender in the right lower quadrant. We normally don't. Um, you know, the trauma surgeons do something equivalent to that, which they do. You know, <laughs> contrast from above and below. So you know, they which is not very fun. Yeah, but so they do something. Operation. Yeah. Oh, you did? You had one here? Yeah, but I didn't. We didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of consultants might recommend stuff, but for us to get them would be another challenge in itself. So we don't, I've never ordered one here. I have years ago, and you know, I would just ask the gastroenterologist to justify it to the radiologist. The radiologists yeah. are very afraid of stool. And yeah. <laughs> and for this, a radiologist would have to go in to the actual x-ray suite and do it. So that's the, the CTs. And with CTs, not with barium, obviously, we do it with, uh, yeah. You can use rectal contrast for CTs, too. We don't do them here, yeah. So what do you guys think of this? It's not normal. So I thought it was pretty nonspecific. So yeah, it just says it shows thumb printing. So I looked at it and I thought the bowel wall didn't look normal, but I didn't think it looked that that's that pretty significant. If the lights were off, I in the dark it actually looks a little better, but this shows it better. So this is not normal. So it's obviously distended, which you can guess, and there's lots of mucosal edema, which you can guess. There's loss of hostra. And the transverse diameter is seven and a half centimeters. Or yes. You know, I the thumbprinting I can't see here, but uh, sometimes you just see, uh, you know, like little outpouchings. It almost looks like polyps on the side, but I don't see it here. If you go back one slide, there's something that might be a thumbprint, like in the left upper quadrant up there. This that's where it's supposed to be. I don't, I don't know. If, of course, that's the hepatic flexure, not the spinal flexure. But this thing, to me, it could be a turd or it could be a thumbprint. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is swollen. This is swollen. So I think that this is an example that there is edema in this bowel wall. So there's two reasons you can see the bowel wall. One is Dr. Langdorf very carefully explained that there's air on both sides. And I think the other reason you see bowel wall is there's fluid. Fluid is dark. So if there's actual swelling in the bowel wall, which we normally don't ever see, but if you have advanced disease, you're going to have a swollen bowel wall with lots of fluid in it, and that you're going to see even if there's not air on the other side because, you know, it's darker than the rest of the abdomen. Now, people would say, gee, here's, I've seen both sides of this bowel wall. Isn't this free air? The issue is, are there two adjacent small bowel loops? There is, yeah. And one with air in them. And yep. then you're seeing sort of a double bowel wall, bowel wall here, and that's, that's acceptable. Yep. Over here, there's not air. There's not a loop on this side. This is soft tissue density. That's air, but you don't see the bowel wall here. Yep. So I would personally be suspicious that this might be yeah. Yep. And this would be the norm. Yeah, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, I see this X-ray, this equals CT and surgical consult. So, all right. So, what do you guys think of this? 
I just want to show you lots of examples of x-rays because this is what we, you know, you probably remember today. So, so it's not normal. And so this doesn't look normal. What else doesn't look normal? Lots of stuff, right, all the way across. So this is a 22-year-old man comes in with uh, blood, mucus per rectum, abdominal distension, fever, disoriented, probably because he's dehydrated and everything else, probably infected. Sigmoidoscopy confirmed it. X-rays, these are two days apart, X-rays. So initial X-ray, and you can see that the distension's getting worse, especially focal distension, and this was kind of more diffuse distension, and it's worse down low as well. And uh, he actually got first then required surgery, colectomy. So here's another example, patient. So 72-year-old vomiting, abdominal distension. The left one is the upright. The right one is the supine. And the upright, you're seeing all these air fluid levels. Tons of dilation. And this patient actually just came in. I just thought this was interesting. It wasn't because of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. It was because of a really low case. They corrected the cake. The bowel motility improved. So it's not always what you think, but still wouldn't change anything we do, but it would still require. Yep. Yep. So presentation. So some of the patients will have extra intestinal manifestation. So these could include the polyarthritis, the ankylosing spondylitis, erythema nodosum. We'll look at some of the, just a couple of pictures. Pyoderma gangrenosum, we have an example of that. Non-granulomatous uveitis, hepatobiliary disease. Crohn's also has gallstones, and they're usually calcium oxalate, and it's because of malabsorption of the bile salts. This is an example of the pyoderma gangrenosum. It's unclear etiology, but they think it's an immune system dysfunction. The presentation. Uh, the inflammatory bile, bowel disease can have hypercoagulable states, although not very common. DVTs, PEs, occasionally arterial occlusions, and they have high mortality. The, uh, they can have blood, uh, recurrent UTIs with Crohn's due to enterobesicular fistulas. Ulcerative colitis, the main thing we think about and that you should remember and you probably already know, complications, colon cancer, long term. And 10 to 30 times the risk. Crohn's is only three times the risk of colon cancer. Um, differential diagnosis, pretty broad, and we'll talk about some of them, but uh, diarrhea, vague abdominal symptoms, malaise, low-grade fever, it could be infection, what you often think about, that could be invasive infections, Shigella, Salmonella, and the invasive, you know, Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, Listeria, or uh, you could also see it with CMV or Yersinia, could be parasites, and could be just HIV uh, with uh, chronic diarrhea. Could be antibiotic-induced colitis, C. difficile. Could be ischemic colitis, diverticulitis, radiation colitis, if they had radiation, obviously. Abdominal pain is the predominant symptom that brings all of them in and gives you this broad differential and more. So you're going to ask lots about their history of their bowel movements, their associated symptoms, how severe their pain is. That often determines what I do, is how severe their pain is, how sick they look, history of their hospitalization. Their family history might help if they remember it. Physical exam signs of toxicity or lack thereof, dehydration, their meta metabolic evaluation, which is our standard GI workup, abdominal stool exam, uh, mainly for blood, but you could also send it for cultures. Standard abdominal pain workup is what we do, and the CT to look for abscesses or mesenteric inflammation or fistulas. Management, you're going to restore their fluids. Electrolytes are going to correct. 
give them pain control as needed up front, antibiotics if needed, and you're covering gram-negative and anaerobes. If they're on steroids, you've got to consider stress doses of steroids now with this acute worsening and to prevent adrenal insufficiency. Actually, with severe ulcerative colitis, meta-analysis shows you can give up to 400 milligrams per day, and they actually do better with very high doses of steroids. Toxic megacolon, you're going to be doing medical therapy with a surgical consult, and they're going to have to have surgical treatment if they're not getting better in a few days. Outpatient, I think they all need to follow up probably with a good internist or GI. Um, a lot of our patients have difficulty seeing a GI doctor, so good internist, or actually probably our family physicians are excellent uh, with this, and I probably would uh, have hesitancy with uh, some of the community family physicians, but I think our family physician would be very comfortable managing this. So some of the medications, our mainstays are prednisone, uh, or 5-ASA, or aminosalicylates, or sulfasalazine, or mesalazine, ascol. And uh, that's one of the main treatments. It's anti-inflammatory, immune suppressive. It's good for controlling both active ulcerative colitis and Crohn's and for maintaining remission of ulcerative colitis. Uh, Sulfasalazine, obviously, also treated to use rheumatoid or ankylosing spondylitis, arthri other arthritides. Antidiarrheal agents are commonly used, Imodium or Lamotil. And you'd use uh, Flagyl if there's any perianal or fistula complications. Uh, you'd be using, giving that, and probably other antibiotics. Just to give you an idea why there's all these different medications, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's, they give them, you know, methotrexate. There's a ton of other medications they give for both these diseases. It's, it's kind of the site of where these things act, and that's why there's so many different ones. So just the five ASA, some that act at duodenum, ileum, terminal ileum, colon, and some just at the colon. So it's basically where, where, where most of the activity happens is, and that's why you have to figure out where the activity is with either sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy, barium enemas, uh, CTs, to figure out where most of their disease is. The typical antibiotics, if you do need it, is our, uh, it's still ciproflagyl, but probably more broad spectrum in our patients. Uh, surgery is contemplated. Uh, ulcerative colitis has an increased risk of cancer, so after 10 years of disease, surgery is considered, or when symptoms are refractory, or they're steroid dependent, which they will all have complications from that. And regular endoscopy is done, but it's not, the, the value is not often shown, how, how helpful it is. So surgical overview, definitive therapy uh, for ulcerative colitis, that so you take the whole colon out. Indications, and it's mostly for ulcerative colitis, but it could be Crohn's. Failure of medical management. Urgent surgery, if they have toxic megacolon, they fulminant attack, refractory to medical, steroids, your other treatments, uncontrolled bleeding. Elective surgery can be long-term steroid dependence. Dysplasia or adenocarcinoma, it's found on biopsy, or they've had disease for a long time. Uh, critical interventions is uh, you've got to recognize serious complication, which not hard for us to do. Hemorrhage, obstruction, perforation, toxic megacolon, abscesses either in the abdomen, pelvic, pelvis, or fistulas, and initiate suppressive therapy, fluids, antibiotics, steroids, and other medications. Uh, this is an example of uh, Crohn's disease of the terminal ileum. Uh, with uh, complications. So this has uh, a narrowed segment of the ileum, thickened wall, uh, and there's air uh, uh, in the mass, typical of an abscess. Uh, this would be ileal Crohn's. 
disposition. Most are outpatient, surprisingly. Hospital admission, for obvious reasons, a lot of bowel movements, a lot of pain, gross bloody stools. If they're toxic, tacky weight loss. Dehydration and metabolic disturbances. Uh, acute complications, any of them that we've talked about. Referral to outpatient care. Surgical consult for complications. Often pitfalls are we're not picking up on these complications. We think these are just exacerbation of their chronic symptoms. They always have these. Doc, I always have these. I always have diarrhea. I've had it for months, if not for years. And you know, not to try to pick out some of the more important signs that uh, this might be a, a worsening exacerbation. Failure to refer with uh, recurrent abdominal pain if they're not diagnosed, especially if they're consistent with inflammatory bowel disease for further evaluation. Often in our, some of our patient population, the referral is our biggest challenge. Uh, we don't have good places to refer our uninsured or underinsured patients. And as you know, most of them are waiting for MSI. Yes, I'm applying. Yes, I'm applying. I'm waiting for Medi-Cal, which makes it harder. And uh, not giving fluids, not giving pain medicine, not giving steroids with an acute exacerbation. I would think that's for diagnosed patients or you're admitting them or you have good follow-up and you're discharging them and you need to give them steroids. And Mark, you wanted to mention something about GI? Well, I was just saying that, that uh, of the malpractice um, cases that I've reviewed, it's a few of them have been patients with chronic belly pain of one, so usually it's uh, uh, diverticulitis. I've got one case pending that's, that's diverticulitis. The patient came in obviously obstructed um, from diverticulitis scarring. Who knows what, but the um, acute abdomen series looked very much like what you saw earlier, and was not, not appreciated apparently by the emergency physician. At one point, they may have called a surgeon. Surgeon says he never got the call. Anyway, my point is make sure that you call the surgeon early and document who you talked to, what you told them, what time you called them, because these patients go south. I mean, the other comment I was going to make is that, yeah, these patients have chronic symptoms. But that's why the reason we do a abdominal pain workup with labs on these patients each time, because we want to know what that bicarb is. We want to know if they're hypoperfused, if they're acidotic, if they're lactate is up, if their white count is sky high, if they've got a shift, all those things, you know, if it's the same old, same old, and they're 12,000 and, you know, 75 segs, and their lactate's normal, and their potassium's normal, and their bicarb's 23, then they can go home. But those other, you know, the bicarb, the potassium, the lactate are tip-offs, that this is an exacerbation that needs to come in the hospital and get more aggressive workup. So call the surgeon early if there's any indication that there could be obstruction, perforation especially, or, you know, just a really ugly look in CT scan or ugly look in um, abdominal series with a lot of bowel dilation. And get the lab work up, and if it's deranged, you know, put them in the hospital, and preferably on a monitored bed, and document when you call the surgeon. So our, just getting back to our case presentation, so it was abdominal pain, diarrhea, endoscopic histological confirmations, ex-smoker, microcytic anemia, arthritis. So likely diagnosis, ulcerative colitis. And why? So bleeding less often with Crohn's, but um, endoscopic changes are usually uh, patchy uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Crohn's. Generally spare the rectum. Histology can be indistinguishable on both of them. So the histology is not going to help you. Infectious colitis usually presents more acutely, and chronic changes such as crypt and distortion is absent. Ischemic colitis has a more acute course and spares the rectum because of the dual blood supply, which I didn't remember from residency and from med school. 
So uh, chronic histological changes such as crypt architectural distortion are key in distinguishing features of uh, ulcerative colitis when you're comparing them maybe to some other causes such as infection, but not between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. We, we don't have to make the distinction. We never have to make the distinction, but it's good for them to know for their, for their exams that are coming up.